Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. There is a sound coming from heaven and shaking the earth. The chorus of voices getting louder and louder, more beautiful, more harmonic. Heaven crying out and the earth replying, Father, you are holy. Jesus, you are worthy. Holy Spirit, you are glorious. Your kingdom come, your rule and reign on earth as it is in heaven place where our greatest longings are met, for relationship, for healing, for freedom, for vision. As our voices rise in a chorus, your kingdom, Lord, is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. At one time, we had no identity as a people, but now we are your own people chosen by you. At one time, we had not received mercy, and now we have received your irresistible grace through Jesus, our Lord. So now we worship you. We long to show others your goodness because you have called us out of darkness into your wonderful light. The kingdom is here. Jesus, you taught us that the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that we can observe people won't be able to say here it is or there it is because the kingdom of God is in our midst. God, would you give us eyes to see it, the kingdom right here within us, among us, around us. This is our call. This is our prayer. And this is why we are here in this moment. We seek first the kingdom and your righteousness. Kingdom come. Amen. Well, good morning, C4. I want to say also good morning to everyone in Auditorium B. Let's just give a hand to them for making some more room today. We're so glad. Fantastic. Thank you so much. We also want to say a, a huge thanks and hello to many of you watching and listening online, whoever you might be uh, in Ontario, around the world. We're, we're glad you're here. If you've got a Bible this morning, I'd love you to turn back to the passage we were in last week. Actually, the passage that Joanna just referred to, uh, Matthew 13. Whether you've got it on a device or in paper form, we, we'd love you to do that. Last week, we began our, our year together. And our theme this year, as you've just seen and heard and sung, is Kingdom Come. And we're taking the first three weeks sort of to set the stage for what we're asking God to do and what he's inviting us to do. And that's why we called this series Kingdom Come Also. Now, if you were with us last week, there was one thing that sort of hit home as we talked about the kingdom of God, and it's this. There's great, great value, incalculable value in the kingdom. But we also began to learn that if you want the kingdom, you always want the kingdom. And our hope and our desire is that as this growing cry for God's kingdom to come more and more among us, we need to stop and maybe ask an unexpected question this morning. An unexpected question in this exciting, growing, bright season as a church. What could kill the kingdom of God as it's being given? 
What could actually dampen it? For us that have already said yes to the kingdom, what shadow could be cast over us so this kingdom that has already come does not fully grow to what God longs and ordains for such a time as this in you and in your family and in your connect group and in this church and this region? If the value of the kingdom is beyond imagination and the king of the kingdom is unbelievable, does the scriptures talk about at all any shadow or ability for things to kill the kingdom? And the answer is yes. Now before we get to that, let me just stop and remind the community what the kingdom of God is so we're all on the same page. Let's be reminded this morning that the heart of Jesus' ministry, his teachings, his acts, his healing, his deliverances, his very presence was to bring, to introduce, and to establish only one thing, the kingdom of God. And never forget that if you really think about it, Jesus was the kingdom come himself. As we learned last week, the kingdom of God, what Matthew calls the kingdom of heaven, is not a place yet. The kingdom of God is not the nation of Israel. The kingdom of God is not the church, this church or any other church on earth. The kingdom of God will not be found in geography. As one person said, actually, the kingdom of God is more verb than it is noun right now. Another person said, the kingdom of God is any space or place where the reign and rule of God is welcomed, embraced, and accepted. If you're a Christian here this morning, you are a member of the kingdom of God because you said yes to Jesus, not only as Savior, but as what? King. The kingdom of God is about God having relationship and rule within a human heart, which of course will be fully experienced later when Jesus returns and all of creation is made right. Another person put it this way, the kingdom is both presence and promise, both within and beyond history. It's now, it's not yet. So this kingdom and its king are amazing. This kingdom and its king are beautiful, redemptive, hope-filled, death-defying, life-altering, life-giving. Yet, there are some real threats to this kingdom. They are temporary threats, but they are real. There are things that can and have choked out this great gift and resisted the great gift-giver. Now, in Matthew chapter 13, there are, depending on how you read it, there are seven or eight parables, stories that Jesus used to talk about the kingdom of God. But let me just step back and remind the audience of something. Matthew is writing to a community of Jews who have accepted Jesus as Messiah. The majority of Christians in Matthew's community are Jewish Christians. And as he is writing this, one of the great things he is wrestling through, and as he hears Jesus' words, this is why he pens what he does. See, there is a great struggle within the early church, and it is this. Why do the majority of Jewish people not accept the claims of Jesus being Messiah, God in flesh, the King of the Jews, the hope of Israel? I mean, he's saying, we have waited our whole lives for this. And then he came and most said, no. Actually, it spills out to a broader audience. It's the same question. Like, why do some say yes and most say no to the kingdom and Jesus, who's the king of the kingdom? Well, to understand all of this and to understand chapter 13, you actually need to start in chapter 12. If you read Matthew 13, the first verse, it says, and it was the same day. So whatever happened in chapter 12 happened on the same day as Jesus is teaching in 13. Now watch this. Chapter 12 probably happened in the morning. It was a difficult, difficult morning for Jesus. Why? 
The religious leaders of the day came to face off against him. They've been listening to what he's been saying, and slowly but surely, their anger has been rising because they, even beyond the people in the crowds, really have begun to discern and understand what Jesus is claiming. See, they get that through his teachings and his healings and his deliverances, Jesus is claiming to be one who is the full Lord. He is claiming to be the Messiah. He is saying through his actions and his words, he is equal with God himself. And that was the last line. And they are so filled with religious rage because they believe he is committing the sin of blasphemy, the unforgivable sin. And it's when Jesus was casting out demons that they lost it and they turned around and they accused him of something. They said, you are nothing less than a charlatan, a liar. Actually, you're worse than that. You are demon-possessed. And everything you're doing is through the devil himself. How Jesus responds in that moment is so intriguing because he talks about the kingdom. Matthew 12, 25 reads like this. Jesus knew their thoughts. Oh, I like that. Jesus, with a gift of words of knowledge, that's what's saying, knew their thoughts, and he said back to them these words. Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. Every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself, how then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? Just asking, side note. So then, they will be your judges. Then he says this. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has what? Come what? Upon you. The kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is here. Now, flip down to verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. And I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. But blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Anyone want to say, wow? Wow. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, is here. And one of the chief evidences that the kingdom of God is here is that I am casting out demons. In other words, my kingdom is replacing the kingdom that has enslaved humanity since chapter 3 in Genesis. And every time I cast out a demon, it is a declaration that God has come to set people free. So then he looks and he says, look, but if you are rejecting me, and you're rejecting the power that I'm doing these acts in, that's the Holy Spirit. That's the unforgivable sin. Now, I want everyone to look up for a moment and catch this. Suicide is not the unforgivable sin. Yelling at God in a dark moment is not the unforgivable Swearing at God, I don't recommend it, is not the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin is when someone looks at Jesus Christ looks at what he is doing by the power of the Spirit and says, no, I reject you and the power you're involved in. I don't believe who you claim to be. Jesus looks at them and he basically is saying to the leaders that supposedly represent him to the people, you have just committed the unforgivable sin. The line could not be starker, thicker, could not be more serious. Eternal life and eternal death is based on what you do with Jesus and what you say about his actions and what power source he's working in. Then in the chapter, there seems to be a lull, a break. From 12 to 13, there seems to be a moment. I'm sure it's afternoon now. 
Jesus maybe is hot, maybe wanted a drink, went by the lake to relax, gathers thoughts. Maybe his back was hurting. He drifts off to sleep, maybe an afternoon nap. Yes, he was God, but he's fully human too. And then what happens always happens. Someone said, and remember, pre-Twitter, pre-Facebook, pre-Instagram, someone says, I think I know where Jesus is. You know that guy who's doing those crazy things? I think he's over in that house right over there. One, two, five, ten, twenty, a hundred, a thousand, we don't know. But the inference of the text is it grows and grows and grows. And I'm sure that if he was sleeping, he would have been woken up by the sound of this massive crowd. Maybe he rubbed his eyes, prayed a prayer, and he goes out. And what does he do in chapter 13? He begins to articulate what the kingdom is, the value of the kingdom, the power of the kingdom. And then he begins to talk about the consequences of saying no to the kingdom. He actually begins to talk about what kills the kingdom. Look at verse 3. He says, you know, a farmer went out to sow his seed. Now this, by the way, parable is not about how to do this, but everyone in the audience would have known. They immediately in their mind, it's an agricultural society, they would have known what Jesus was talking about, right in their minds. So what would happen? Well, in Israel, they used to do something called broadcast sowing, where a farmer would walk across his field before he plowed it. Can I just say that again? Very important. The farmer would walk along his field before he plowed it. And he'd have a bag, a satchel of seed, and he would broadcast. He would throw seed, knowing that it would land on all sorts of soil, good, bad, fantastic, and terrible. And he'd walk up and down these fields, and he'd just throw seed. He'd throw seed. He'd throw seed. Only after he had covered the whole field with seed. Then he'd take a plow oxen, donkey, whatever, and he would create furrows in this deep ground, and he would do it, and then the seed would begin to mix into the soil. So Jesus says these words, and this immediately comes into the mind of every person. He says, there was a farmer who went to sow a seed. So everyone in their mind, okay, guys, throw in seed. But don't miss the obvious truth, please. This is so significant this morning. Once the seed is thrown, it's on its own. So as he was scattering, verse 4, the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and, up, came and ate it up. It's like our squirrel problem in Ontario, right? Anyone want to kill a squirrel? You can raise your hand, admit it. Yeah, that's right. Some are like, no, I love the squirrel. Breathe. It's going to be okay. But you know what we're talking about, right? They come and eat seed. Like, they're, they're unprotected. So we're throwing the seed. The birds come. No protection. No covering. Exposed. No ability to root. Gone. Some fell in rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had... Now, this is critical. Everyone want to say this loud. Had what? Say it together. No root. And so what, what this idea is, he's, uh, he's throwing the seed and some of these things begin to sort of grow... But they don't get a root. Why? Well, in that country, there's a very thin topsoil layer, and then there's lots of limestone. So this was unbelievably common. Everyone's going, yeah, okay, I get this. And it says that these little plants that can't root are scorched. They're burned alive by the sun. Verse 7, other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked out the plants. Well, uh, thorns, brambles, thistles, nettles, weeds. In other words, one thing kills another thing. But the image here is of the farmer actually casting the seed by the edges of his field. Most farmers in this region used thorns as boundary markers between the fields and also to keep animals out. And so he throws the seed. The seed sort of begins to grow, but like all weeds, it kills it. Now, I'm sure at this point, the crowd is wondering if the story had anything positive at all. Anything uplifting, like Jesus, everything's dying. I thought you were a nice guy, like light, hope, something, anything. I'm sure Jesus with a smile on his face, new new power, strength, says still, 
Other seed fell on the good soil, where it produced a crop, 160, 30 times what was sown. Now, seeds are small. We, I think we all know this here today. They're small, right? They, they seem insignificant, but we all know that every massive tree we walk by started as a small seed. So what looks small and nothing can produce unbelievable results. But here's what Jesus does, which we don't catch as modern readers in the West. Jesus says that these little seeds can produce what? Is it, what is it? What does it say? A hundred? Then what? Sixty. That's weak. Say it again. What? And then what? Okay, so here's what I learned this week. First thing is this. A 30-fold crop was the best crop you'd have once in your lifetime. A 30-fold crop would be like, do you remember 1995? Oh my goodness, do you remember that? When we had that crop, like, man, we made so much money, we're never going to see that again in our lifetime. Like, that was unbelievable. That's 30. 60 is like, you're lying. I don't believe you had a crop like that. You're lying. Hashtag exaggeration. I don't believe you. (laughs) Not true. A hundred is impossible. And look what Jesus says. But where the seed falls, the impossible takes place. He says, and I love this when he's talking, the crowd would have got this. He doesn't start with the average. He starts with the best and goes to the impossible. I'm sure the crowd is quiet, attentive, listening, hanging off every word. Jesus is standing, the crowd fully mixed like this is today. Some with him, some against him, some not sure. I'm sure there were lots of people there just for the show, the carnival. Would he heal someone? I want to see him cast out a demon. That would be so cool. Other people are like, come on, take on the religious leaders. That's just so fun. I want to watch that. Other people are just like, I'm bored. I was dragged here by my mom, right? Like, it's the same there as it is here. So Jesus stands up. He talks about this, and then he says in verse 9, So he who has ears, um, let him hear. What? Yeah, he who has ears, uh, let him hear. Now let me just stop and remind the crowd of something this morning. It's the same seed, same power to explode, bless, 30, 60, 100 fold, but depending on what soil it falls on, well, that determines the result. Jesus has actually outlined three unsuccessful plantings with a fourth, which is unbelievable. Now, the seed, as we're about to see, is the message of the kingdom. And as, as, as many of us actually know, the message of the kingdom is the messenger himself. So after these words, after this challenge, the crowd is waiting, and Jesus, he's in a boat, gets out of the boat, takes a break, and walks away. And as he's leaving, he just says, he who has ears, let him hear. Now, I'm sure the crowd was like, what? Like anything? Bueller? Like What? Like, you just, you just walked away. You, you do this whole thing to us, and then, then what? And Jesus just leaves. Now, Jesus is back in this house. The disciples are with him. And I'm sure a very intimate conversation begins to take place. Jesus. Uh, they didn't get it. And by the way, we didn't get it. And why do you keep doing this? You're sti- I mean, you're, no offense, Jesus, great teacher, great teacher. But would you stop using parables? They're so cryptic and so vague and so can't you just keep it simple, stupid. That is what we're looking for. Don't you want your crowds to grow? You don't need a PR firm to tell you that it doesn't work if you're vague and obtuse. If you're direct, telling them what you're giving, maybe they'll join you. But you keep teaching wrong. That's the heart of why they say in verse 10, why do you keep speaking in parables? Now watch what Jesus says ever in this morning. Oh, he says, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. I'm sorry, what? 
The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, they've been given to you, but I haven't given it to them. See, this drives home something so huge sitting in this church this morning, in every church. Why do people respond so differently to the gospel? Why do people embrace or reject the good news? Why do people run and run away from the king of the kingdom? Four categories, two results. Now, I want to undo something this morning, okay? Is this saying that some of you here this morning are just better at getting spiritual nuance than your friend who hasn't met Jesus yet? Are some of you here this morning just spiritual, more in touch than your friend who, or, or, or dad, or, or mom, or sister, fill in the blank, that, that hasn't said yes? Are you more religious? What is inside of you that gives you such an unbelievable edge that for some reason you were able to comprehend the yes, but the person who you know who's just as smart or intellectual or aware as you said no? So what edge do you have that they don't? And Jesus says, oh, there's no edge. Uh, there's, there, you think there's an edge? No, no, there's no edge. No, God reveals God's truth. Natural understanding will never do it. The secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been what? Given to you. You need glasses of faith. You need the work of God's spirit. God calls people. The secret or the mystery has been given to you. Again, this once again runs at the idea of religion that teaches that I'm saved by what I do, who I am, what my ethnicity is, what my family did, how good I am, how religious I am. And Jesus comes along and says, no, no, don't you understand? If you're going to get the kingdom, the kingdom is actually going to be given to you first. The disciples are deeply bewildered, I'm sure. And then Jesus keeps going. This is why I speak to verse 13 in parables. Though seeing they don't see, though hearing they don't hear or understand, in them is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. You will ever be hearing but never understanding, ever be seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart have become calloused. They they, They hardly hear with their ears. They've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn. And I would, what? I would heal them. Why did Jesus come? To bring healing to the nations. He said, I want to do this. Now, the key phrase here is calloused. Hardened. He says, that whole crowd that was there to watch me, they had hard hearts. What? He says, they had hard hearts. Now, what does it mean when someone's heart gets hard? Listen closely. Does God harden your heart or do you harden your heart? Because both are used in the Bible. Here's what the Bible talks about with a calloused or hardened heart. This is a very common idea. This is the idea that God takes his spiritual hands off people, humanity, and lets us follow our own hearts and desires. He takes off his fatherly protective hands and say, you don't want my hands? You, don't, you sure? Okay, my hands are off. And what happens is we will follow the own desires of our heart. And since we're born into sin and we're naturally inclined towards sin, we will always end up with a hard heart. The hard-hearted condition has existed since Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. We choose to close our eyes. We become callous. We say we want healing. We say we want the kingdom of God. We cry out kingdom come, but when it comes, we say, not interested. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 6, 9, and he's basically saying, here's what one scholar wrote, the unbelievers among the crowd are just like the religious leaders in chapter 12 who are committing the unpardonable sin. 
They're sending away their day of opportunity. They have, neither he- they have neither heard, seen, or understood. But the text makes clear the blame is not God's and the blame is not the prophet's. The message itself isn't even deafening or blinding or stunning them. It's because the people have been grown obtuse. They do not perceive in the message about Jesus the realization of their own most authentic hope. You actually don't want the kingdom to come, Jesus is saying. The other kingdom that owns you, you hate. But like an abusive relationship, you keep going back because you're okay with it, but you're not, but you are. You walked away in the garden, and it's been the same ever since. Oh, I want to heal. The crowd doesn't really want it. Jesus turns to his followers, his friends, I'm sure each of them again perplexed. How would you know that about the crowd? How could you do this? And then he says these words, looking each one of them, I'm sure, in the eyes. Listen, but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men long to see what you see, but did not see it and to hear what you hear, but they did not hear it. They said, guys, do you understand what's happening? At this moment, like Jesus is sitting in this house with this, his, his inner circle. He says, do you understand, boys, do you understand at this moment what is taking place? You are standing right now. You are seeing, experiencing, and hearing the longing of every person you've looked up to as a religious Jew. You are at the epicenter of all of history in this house, in this moment. All of holy history has been begging and waiting for this point. Adam, Eve, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. Aaron, Joshua, all of them, Samuel, Deborah, Samson, you know this, he's saying David, Solomon, Elijah, and Elisha, Josiah, Hezekiah, Nehemiah, Ezra, Malachi, all of them, Peter, you, Thomas, you, Judas, you, Matthew, you, tax collectors, zealots, fishermen, you are more blessed than all that have lived in holy history who wrote the Old Testament. They longed and cried out for and waited for this kingdom to come. And you, the lesser, you, the unexpected, you get to see the longing of the universe right in front of your eyes. It has come. And what's unbelievable, don't you feel encouraged that God would choose to give us, the lesser, more insight than Moses himself? Have you thought about that? He says, at this moment, he says, now guys, let me tell you what the parable means. It says in verse 19, when anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches what was sown in his heart or her heart. This is the seed sown among the path. One person wrote, the portrait of Satan here is that of an ever-present predator seeking to undermine the kingdom work by devouring whatever fledgling faith he sees. He says, (laughs) let me say this this morning. (laughs) For you who keep not taking this war seriously, wake up. Every time you share the gospel, every time a podcast is listened, every time the kingdom of God is demonstrated in word or deed through a Salvation Army food bank or you praying for someone or talking about the gospel or people coming to church, every time the the seed is being sown, the kingdom of darkness, principalities, powers, rulers and authorities, real entities are waiting to kill what is being given. This is a real war. But thanks be to God, our side won. (laughs) He says, this happens all the time. There are people in your families. There are people in your works where you gave the kingdom and you didn't even know what happened. But a thing came and went, thank you. Killed it. Not only that, he says, let me keep going. 
The one who received the seed that fell in the rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But trouble or persecution comes because of the word and he quickly or she quickly falls away. Personal shallowness kills the reality of faith. See, it says they receive it with joy initially, but initial enthusiasm does not equate true acceptance. See, remember, it's not real. Why? It had no root. And he says, you will begin to understand if the kingdom come is rooted in a person's life, if and when, as they walk through life, trouble and persecution does not wipe out the kingdom. Well, what's trouble? Trouble's trouble. We live with trouble. Sickness is trouble. Family problems are trouble, right? Like we have lots of issues. We live in a world of trouble. He says, trouble's just part of life. And then persecution, he says, you know, when someone says they've accepted Jesus, but then when Jesus costs them something, you will begin to see over time if it's real. He says that their faith collapsed. It's like a house collapsing. It's not a, it's not a gradual thing. It's an immediate thing. He said, troubles of life, which all of us are going to face, Christian and non, and persecution. So you've got the enemy of our souls. You've got everyday life. And then when it costs you something, But there's more. He says, the one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is like a man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. The worries of this life, well, what do I wear and what do I own and what about my car and what about my RSPs and what about my kid's school? None of these things are wrong, but the worries of this life. And then he says something that is so unbelievably uncomfortable for me and for us. Wealth chokes out God's work. Wealth cannot offer what it says. It can never give you intimacy, connection, unconditional love. Now, money, houses, cars, trips, furniture, food, none of these things are evil. And I want to declare this this morning. It's not wrong being rich. But what he is saying is these God-given gifts can grow and grow so quickly and choke out the kingdom of God quicker than you can imagine. Now, I've been thinking about this because I'm rich. You say, well, isn't that nice for you? How much are we paying you? Breathe, it's okay. (laughs) What do you mean you're rich? Well, no, I I live in Canada. Look at how I'm dressed. I have two cars. I have a house. That means I'm in the top 3% of the world globally right now standing here. Some of you are in the top one. There's not a person in this room who's not rich compared to the world. And there are many of us in this room who are capital R rich. Is that wrong? No, it's not. But this is what I wrestled with all week. Jesus comes along and says, let me just be bluntly obvious with you. Let me be very clear with you. Wealth regularly kills the kingdom come. One person said, why are we dying in the West? It seems so simple. To be a disciple and to be rich is just difficult. Not impossible, just difficult. Surely we think, well, it can't be that simple, but Jesus says it's that simple. The lure of wealth can produce in us something. It can literally darken and choke out our imaginations. As a result, listen closely, the church falls prey to the deepest enemy of the gospel, sentimentality. The gospel becomes a formula for us to give our lives meaning, but it has no consequences or judgment. Jesus comes and he says, look, here's the truth. Tribulation, worldly stuff, persecutions, wealth, central offers, and the king of the other kingdom regularly kill the kingdom come. It happens all the time. By the way, are there names starting to flood through some of your minds? Are people starting to come in your mind who you go, and you're not judging them as an ultimate judge, but you're like, I was, like, I thought for sure. These competitors are real. 
But Jesus says the one who received the seed that fell on the good soil is, is the man who hears the word and understands it and, and produces a crop uh, yielding 160 or 30 times what is sown. See, Jesus says, don't you know when someone does understand the secrets of God's kingdom are given, when they are illuminated and they cry out God's kingdom come, the impossible happens. Someone who didn't want God meets God. They're changed by God. And here's the amazing thing. As the seed plants in their life, they become a seed bearer and they begin to explode to all sorts of other people. He says, take heart. There is unbelievable soil. And when one person says yes, everything changes. Everything changes. Jesus, through his teaching, forces the crowd to make a decision. The parables all force one issue, by the way. Like them, it also brings us to the question right now. uh, Do I actually want the kingdom come? Does, what does one do with the promise or offer of Jesus? Which, which seed, which kind of soil are you? When Jesus' word is given, how do you hear? Uh, how, how do you respond this morning? Do you actually have ears to hear? For you who join us, and there's lots of you, and we're so glad that you're here, that you are either Christian by title, but not really a follower of Christ, or you're genuinely not a Christian. I just want to say to you this morning, the kingdom is calling right now. The soil is a metaphor of your heart and your mind. And Jesus actually says that you, in many ways, are responsible for what you do with the seed. There's only two kinds of people, Jesus says. Those who will know God and live with him in the now, they will walk in the kingdom now and walk in its fuller expression later. And those who will not want the kingdom now and will not live in the kingdom at all later, which is called hell. As I said last week, God will only ratify uh, the relationship we choose in this life, uh, in, in the next life. If we have fellowship with God now, if we have the kingdom of God now, we'll want the kingdom of God then. If we don't want the kingdom now, we definitely won't want the kingdom there. If you want the king here, you'll want the king there. Heaven and hell are not so much about future reward and punishment. They are the logical outcome of our relationship with God in this life. I love this old quote from John Hanna who said, No one who is ever in hell will be able to say to God, you put me here, and no one who's in heaven will ever be able to say, I put myself here. Isn't that good? God, though, says this morning, unexpected, as seed is literally being thrown into this audience, an online, an auditorium B, God has not left us to ourselves in the sense of wealth, the devil, the worries of life. He knew what every person in this room would face, what we would embrace, where we would naturally go, and he has come to rescue and redeem us. Here is the good news of Christianity. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in Jesus will not die but have what? everlasting life, eternal life. You this morning, if you have not met Jesus, can be a person not controlled or in fear of the evil one any longer. You can be set free from the ultimate worries of this world. You can actually live knowing you will die, but death will not overpower you. You can actually live free from the illusion, continually perpetuated in the West, that if you have more stuff, you'll be happy. God can set you free from that. God can come and overcome any bitterness, any anger, any abuse you've been through. God comes and says, I will deal with trouble and worldliness and wealth and the evil one, if you would just turn to the king of the kingdom and say yes to him, you'll be given forgiveness. The ultimate chance is being given now. Don't be unreceptive soil. Let God plant himself in your life. Cry out, kingdom come, and you will be free. So many of us sitting here today, that's our story. We're not here because we're deeply religious or good. We said, oh God, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Now, I just want to stop before I speak to the rest of church and say, if that's you, 
and you truly want to say, I want to be receptive soil, just stop and pray this with me right now. Church, pray. You know what's going on. We just preached on it. If this is you, an auditorium B, you online, just pray this. Say, Jesus Christ, I want to be good soil. I want your kingdom to come in me. So I open my life to you. I I confess. I don't all get it, but I confess that you are the son of God, that you died in my place, that you're risen from the dead, and that you can do all that stuff that pastor just said. I turn from my life facing me, and I face Jesus and ask him to save me and be my king. Just say this, Jesus, your kingdom come in me. And everyone said, amen. If you prayed that at the end of this service, in this auditorium and the next, there are people with prayer lanyards. Come up and say, I prayed that. I prayed that. And I need to know what to do next. It's so significant. So the seed will grow. Believers, let me just say a few things because uh, this is so important for us. Everyone ready? Is anyone praying that the kingdom of God would come in greater measure in their life? Raise your hand, honestly. Is anyone starting to really pray that God's kingdom would grow in this church? You can shout it out, yes or no? Yes. Is anyone really starting to pray in a new way that God's kingdom would come in the region? Okay, so that was weak. We need to do some prayer help. This is what the scriptures tell us this morning, though. And this is so critical as we make not only this a theme, but our heart cry. Here it is. The shadow of what we've been set free of is still around us. Though we have been good soil, we have accepted Jesus. Let me say, this isn't about losing salvation, but understand that we still face down these enemies. The evil one, trouble comes because we live in this world. Some of us are being persecuted. Some of us are struggling with the worries of this life. And many of us have never even thought about how wealth could actually impact the kingdom. So I would like to stop for a moment and do this activity with the whole church, Auditorium B2. Would everyone just close their eyes if you're a believer here today? And I want to lead us in a prayer to ask Jesus himself to point out in any one of our lives if one of these things is becoming larger than him. Because we're praying for God's kingdom to come, and God's kingdom has come, and we've been good soil, but we don't want the shadow of those things to begin to dampen what's already taking place. So Lord Jesus, hear our prayer. As a whole church, we're praying for your kingdom to come. We mean it. We're praying for your kingdom to come in us, in our church, in our region. But here's the point, Lord. Is something becoming too strong in us? So here's the first one. Lord, just tell someone if it's the evil one in their life. Just point it out. Maybe it's trouble, honest struggle. Maybe for others it's persecution. They're they're actually being attacked for being a Christian. Maybe it's the worries of life produced by wealth. Holy Spirit, we would pray that you begin to show each one of us what it could be and then what to do next. We pray for the kingdom come to begin to keep replacing these things. And Lord, what you've just said to this audience in an auditorium being online, Lord, preserve it and may there be repentance or change or, or encouragement. Lord, we pray your kingdom would replace these things. Uh, In Jesus' name, Uh, amen. Two last things I want to say as we prepare to respond, and it's this. I want to reassure this church this morning that none of us have to feel guilty or overwhelmed by the task in front of us. I want to sow into you godly confidence and trust. Our job in this church is to be like the sower and proclaim the message and demonstrate the the message of God. But God will produce the results in people, not us. 
This is a load off for many people in this church. Please don't get disconnected. Please hear this. It's not our business to see what happens in people's lives. It's our business to point them to Jesus. The seed is good whether people say yes or no. Some of you are wondering if the message of God is good because people keep saying no. It is good. It is good. Don't believe the lie because it doesn't work on everyone. It's not real. It is And just because we speak the truth does not mean we will be successful. And so I want to say for some of you, especially a few this morning, you who keep holding on to your friends and family and neighbors and and you feel guilty and you struggle and you go, what have I done wrong? Let, Let me just tell you something. You've done nothing wrong. Keep living for Jesus, speaking about Jesus, pointing to Jesus, and let God do his work. Many Christians stop witnessing and living holy lives because their expectations are in the wrong place. Jesus didn't make you God. Jesus just asked you to represent him. So no one in this church, please give up asking for the kingdom to come. No one in this church, give up, keep pointing people to Jesus because you don't see the results that you think. Remember, three unsuccessful plantings, only one successful planting. And here's the last thing. I hope you're ready. This parable is about yes. It's a hopeful and celebrative passage in the end. Because when someone actually does embrace Jesus, the impossible takes place. So here's my challenge to us this morning. It is our prayer, and I hope a growing expectation and anticipation in this church, that as we truly truly pray, kingdom come, and we ask for God's kingdom, though many people will say no, some in this region, God is already prepared to say yes. Do you believe that? No, no. Do you believe God has already prepared the ground for many people to say yes to his son? Yes, he has. And since that's true, begin to pray that God's kingdom would come and look with eyes of anticipation and expectation because when the kingdom is embraced, the impossible will take place. Many of you are the story of the impossible. And as we pray for God's kingdom to come, God this year is going to bring many more sons and daughters home into this church and other churches. So let us be anticipating and welcoming his kingdom and thinking through his kingdom and giving the kingdom out and realizing that God is preparing the ground far before we ever get to these people, right? So be encouraged this morning. Be aware of the enemies. Don't have wrong expectations and be embracing the kingdom of God as Jesus has declared to us. Let's stand together and respond. Lord, in this auditorium, in the auditorium next door, online to people watching in connect groups and by themselves, in homes, you know, on buses, on planes, We just want to say, we pray, and we mean it. Lord, your kingdom come. Lord, your kingdom come among us. And Lord, thank you that you decided to come for us uh, when we could not get to you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would begin to move back the shadows in this church, give godly confidence in this church, boldness in this church. And Lord, too, now as we celebrate communion together, that we would declare the kingdom has come. And we want more and more of Jesus' death and resurrection in our lives. Lord, do your strange, unusual work in us and in this church. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. This is how we're going to respond as we get ready to sing. Is we're going to take communion. And if you're going to serve communion, you can come forward. Communion is the great symbol of Jesus' death and resurrection. It's actually what he says to his followers to, to do on a regular basis as we celebrate his death and his resurrection and his ascension. This is for Christians. And if you are a Christian here this morning, 
you follow Jesus, this is for you. If you're not a Christian yet, we ask you not to take this because you've not embraced what it symbolizes. The scriptures are clear. If some of you are really running from Jesus and you don't want to deal with him, don't take this because you're running from the one that has embraced you. But this is a great place we always say to come back. But for you who are struggling, you doing well, come and take the symbol of uh, Jesus' death and resurrection. And can I ask this of everyone? Would you please pray when you take communion today? God, your kingdom come, no matter the cost, in me, my family, the church, and the region. Lord, bless these elements. Meet us at these tables. Continue to work out this among us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.